Mr. Holdsworth, you're aware of the name of this podcast, aren't you? Very aware, sir. It bears a proud name, doesn't it? A very proud name, sir. It represents fine movies. Very fine movies. And these movies live in a fine, outstanding state of being underrated. A very outstanding state of being underrated. On the greatest podcast in the entire world. The greatest podcast in the entire world. And what is the name of that podcast? Staff Picks, sir! And what do we say? Staff Picks! Staff Picks! Staff Picks! Fall out! And welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is a fun one because I haven't done an action movie in a while, although I'd make the argument this isn't really an action movie, it's more of a war movie. But I am talking about the 1995 thriller Crimson Tide, set in a submarine, which is one of these movies that I always love and I will always pay attention to it if it's on TV because it's so engrossing and so well done. And it is one that I would love to expand to a wider audience to people that maybe wouldn't go see an action movie like this. So... That's my goal today. I'm going to sell a movie you think is an action movie, and I'm going to uh, sell it to people who probably would not give it a chance. And my guest on this one, uh, you guys are in luck for this one, because I always try to find the perfect match for a person who matches up with a movie. And some movies it's hard, some movies it's very easy. This is a movie that was set on a nuclear submarine. It's entirely set underwater in a submarine. And I found one of my listeners who used to serve on a submarine. And I'm very excited about this. He's a movie geek. He has submarine knowledge, insider into submarine knowledge, which I do not have. So I'm very excited about this. And he has told me this movie is not accurate at all. So I'm very excited to delve into that. Welcome to the show, Mr. Submarine Guy, David Holdsworth. Thank you for having Mario. I'm very excited to be on Staff Picks. I'm a big fan. Yeah, David is someone that I've tried to get on the show for a while once I found out he had submarine knowledge. So why don't you give people a little background on who you are, what you do, why you are a good fit for this movie? Sure. Um, I'm married. I have two kids and I have two hobbies. I like movies and I like Survivor. And if you're in the on the Internet and you like movies and Survivor, you eventually get sucked into the black hole that is Mario Lanza. And that's what <laughs> happened to me. So I heard that Mario was looking to do a, a Crimson Tide staff picks. And I said, you know, what the hell? I'll throw my name in the mix. I went to the Naval Academy. I served five years. I was a nuclear engineer and officer on submarines. And I said, you know what? There's probably not a lot of people out there that love the movie as much as I do and have that type of background. So I said, Mario, are you interested in having me? And I thought he would just say, be gone, commoner. But no, he said if a couple roadblocks fell away, he would have me on and it happened. So I'm very excited to be here. And you are indeed a movie geek, correct? It's not, I mean, you were, you were probably a good choice to begin with for a, movie, a podcast like this. I am a movie geek. When you serve on submarines, there's not much to do but watch movies. So I've seen thousands of movies. I'm a movie nut. I thought you guys just stood around and argued about the Silver Surfer comic books. That is. I mean, we watch movies, we sleep, and we argue about comic book trivia. That's all we do. <laughs> okay. To sum this movie up for people, it's a very simple premise. It's really 
uh, a story of a mutiny on a United States nuclear submarine. But it, it's so much more than that. That's like, I really feel like I'm doing it a disservice. Like, how would you describe this movie to people, David? I would describe it as an action flick with two just great boxing type, you know, active, exciting guys with opposite sides on a submarine with both having very different views of a very important order that comes down and how it affects the whole world. And it takes place over two hours and it's almost real time for a lot of the movie. Very, very exciting. Okay, yeah, no, that's an excellent summary. Yeah, it's Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman, and they are the number one and two in command on a nuclear submarine. And we'll get into that because I don't really understand the chain of command on a submarine, so this is one of the reasons I wanted David here. <laughs> but it's, yeah, basically, it's a very thoughtful movie over what the ethics of war are and how the chain of command works when it breaks down in the middle of a nuclear situation. And I find this movie to be very thoughtful. Like, I think it's almost doing it a disservice calling it an action movie, wouldn't you say? I, I do. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of debate after the movie on what was the right thing to do and what the wrong thing to do was. And it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of people, and most of the people who were actually in the Navy on submarines said they would have sided one way. And all the civilians talked to say, you're, you're smoking dope. You should have gone the other way. It's <laughs> a lot of debate. That's fascinating. I never thought about that. So it's like a 100% split right down the middle. From at least the people I've talked to, yes. Huh. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I know Roger Ebert, I don't know if you read his review, he liked this movie quite a bit. And he said, you know, most war movies, you just come out feeling pummeled or feeling exhilarated. He's like, I heard people coming out of this movie discussing the ethics and discussing the, the plot of the movie. Because he's like, it's very rare to come out of a movie like this where people are actually engaged in the discussion on what they would do in this situation. And that's why I think this one's special. I would agree with you. And it was funny. I watched it opening night with all the officers on our former submarine wardroom. We had heard about this great action flick taking place on submarines, you know, because, you know, you get very excited about that kind of stuff. And everyone's like, nah, we don't want to see it. But then someone said Ricky Schroeder was in it. And we're like, God damn it. We got to go see this opening night. So we were in the audience and it was very funny. There's a lot of things that happen on in the movie that you know are slightly unrealistic, but you would just hear people in the audience yelling, "That's bullshit! No way!" Just it was the officers in the in the audience who were just having some issues with what was shown on the screen. <laughs> Yet they were cool with Ricky Schroeder being on the submarine. That that part they were fine with. Yeah, that him and, and Ryan Phillippe. Yes, very exciting to have them on the screen. Yes, <laughs> I love that Ricky Schroeder is like tenth build in this movie, and he's in it for what a minute and a half, maybe. Yeah, he, he does not have a lot to do, but he, he does have a big scene near the end, which we'll get to, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, and for my younger listeners, Ricky Schroeder, I hate that I have to explain this. The star of the beloved 80s children's sitcom Silver Spoons, and he had a very tough time transitioning into adult roles after Silver Spoons. This is one of the rare movies where you see awkward-phased Rick Schroeder trying not to be Ricky anymore as a, as a uh, Navy submarine attendant or whatever. And he's actually billed as Rick Schroeder specifically, not Ricky. <laughs> okay, um, let's see what else. So I myself did not see this movie for the longest time. And I will tell you why is because I saw The Hunt for Red October first. I'm sure you have to know that movie, right? I, I do very well, yes. I hate that movie. I remember seeing that in the theater. I thought it was so boring. And so I would not give this movie a, a chance because it's very, it sounds very similar on paper. Yeah, this 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 movie is a lot more action than Hunt for Red October does. Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't think I saw this movie till about 2015, 
It was many years later. And the only reason why is because attentive staff picks listeners will remember I did The Rock, one of my top five favorite movies. I heard someone told me, oh, Crimson Tide is just like The Rock. It's exactly the same movie, same music and everything. And I'm like, really? And I finally got around to seeing it. I'm like, oh, my God, how did I not watch this movie until 2015? Because it's so close to The Rock. Yeah, I love The Rock as well. It's very similar. Yeah, although here's another comparison. Because, again, I really feel I'm steering people in the wrong direction by describing this as an action movie. Upon watching it today, I think a much better comp for this movie is War Games, not The Rock. I, I could, especially with the potential Armageddon aspect of it, yes, definitely. Okay. And to sum this up for people, it's basically, I'm going to give you the short version, we'll go through it later. A nuclear submarine is has orders to go to Russia to launch a nuclear missile. They get a, an order to launch, and this is like a big deal, that you're going to start World War III, but you're expected to follow the order. Then they get a second order, but it doesn't come through all the way. And they're not sure if it's a retraction of the order or if it's telling them to go through and start world war three and so these two commanders on the sub argue over the ethics of whether they should follow the order or not and it really delves into war games territory is world war three even a responsible thing to be a part of that's the thing it it really delves into that is it possible to even win a war in the modern era well, I think Denzel, Denzel says it he's, as Commander Hunter in the movie says, in my humble opinion, in the nuclear world, the true enemy is war itself. It's a really good line that kind of summarizes the ethics of what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's And again, I just did war games on staff picks. This is so similar. And that's that's the crowd I really want to draw into this movie if you've never seen it before. If you've seen war games, I think you will like this because it's basically that, a little more action-y, but it's got these two huge leads, Denzel Washington at the top of his game, Gene Hackman still at the top of his game. And it's really astounding it's really like it's one of these movies i think everybody should see at least once it's so powerful i would agree and hackman he he is if you saw um a few good men when jack nicholson just so powerful in his scenes hackman in this movie is similar to that really chewing up the scenery with great acting denzel really good i'm almost understated the amount that he gets across without speaking his disdain and contempt for the captain it's really great acting in this movie Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is just a must-see. Everybody should see this, even though it sounds like an action movie. And we're going to get into it in a second. It's a very uh, complicated plot. Now, there's a lot of plot points you got to hit. But there's a a couple things i got to mention before we start. I'm sure you're aware of this. Quentin Tarantino, one of the uncredited screenwriters for this movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you watch the movie and you know Tarantino, you can tell the three scenes that he came in to write. (laughs) It's the one with the bare feet, the women in the bare feet, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you know that he and Denzel got into a fight in during the movie? Did you hear about this? Please don't tell me Quentin dropped an N-word. No. Well, Denzel Washington approached Tarantino for using the N-word in previous movies, and Tarantino said, hey, can we take this offline? And Denzel Washington said no. And he had a screaming fight later on in the early 2010s. Denzel Washington apologized to Tarantino, and then Denzel Washington's daughter actually worked on one of Tarantino's movies later, so they kissed and made up. Okay, that's good to know. I didn't know that. But yeah, but yeah it's if you watch this movie, just keep in mind it was written around the same time as Pulp Fiction, and you can very much hear the Quentin Tarantino dialogue in a couple scenes. It's a fun little trivia fact. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that 
the U.S. Navy did not like this movie and did not cooperate at all, correct? Well, it's funny. At first, they were cooperating. The um, Tony Scott got to ride on one of the U.S. submarines, the USS Florida, and the Navy was going to get behind it because they had such a good relationship on Top Gun, which was my wife, my wife and my first date in 86. And the Navy was told that it was going to be something like the officers in the submarine are going to be trying to stop a rogue computer from starting World War III. And they said, that's a great idea. Once they found out that it was a potential mutiny on the submarine, that that became the plot, the Navy pulled all support from the movie. So, yeah, he went against them. So were you on active duty when this movie came out? Like, were you allowed to see it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was on active duty. I was based on an attack submarine in Pearl Harbor at the time. (laughs) Now, speaking of that, I read that's where they filmed some of the footage that they were not allowed to shoot, correct? You heard about that, yeah. So Tony Scott was in Hawaii hoping to get video of a submarine pulling out and diving. And he had paid off one of the civilian contractors, gave him a call and said, the actual U.S. Alabama, USS Alabama is taking out a port. So they have helicopters, they got boats out there taking video of the USS Alabama going out that just happened to be there. The captain of the submarine is calling the Navy, trying to get Tony Scott arrested. And they said, well, just dive now to get rid of him. So he dove the submarine, which is exactly what Tony Scott wanted to see. So he got that on video. (laughs) The Navy tried to sue him, but they were in public waters and they couldn't do anything about it. So it's an interesting story. (laughs) Yeah. So if you watch this movie, look at the footage of the submarine surfacing at the beginning of the movie or the diving at the beginning of the movie. And that's all illegally taken footage that he wasn't supposed to take. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm dying to know which parts of this movie are accurate and inaccurate, but I don't want to start or this early in the podcast. I are, are you able to? Are you willing to point those out when we get to them in the in the, the script? You know, I will. I will say this movie is surprisingly accurate, and a lot of the changes they make are really just to streamline the plot, except for a few big ones. I'll point out the big ones. I'm not going to nitpick though. Okay. It is funny because I mentioned the other day I'm doing staff uh, Crimson Tide on staff picks, and like literally the first tweet was put me on there so I could talk about how how inaccurate it is. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I already got a guy for that, but thank you. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. Crimson Tide, this wonderfully underrated movie, action, uh, thoughtful war drama, movie about ethics, really cool drama from the mid-'90s, which once again fits my a theory my dad told me when I was a kid. He said, Mario, and I said, what, father? He said, there are no bad Gene Hackman movies. It's pretty much true. I, I will say, though, if you like female actor, actresses, if you don't like if you like actresses, this does not pass the Pechdel test. This movie, it is pretty much after the one of the opening scenes. You don't see another female in this movie, the entire movie. So, <laughs> well, I do remember on Silver Spoons, there were a couple episodes where Ricky had to dress up as a girl. So maybe that's as close as we get. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at the credits today, and I noticed one female. And I'm like, I don't even remember who that was. Who? How did she make it into the movie that I remember? Oh, that's Denzel's wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Are you ready to dive down? As we say in the Navy, auga. That's the, that's the dive sound the submarine makes, yes. Okay, auga. Is that how we say it? Auga. Auga. That's the, the submarine dive bell you ring, yes. Okay, so here we go. This movie is the story of uh, basically there's two submarine commanders. One is Denzel Washington, a very idealistic, young, highly educated, young, new face of the Navy. His name is, uh, I don't even remember his first name, is Hunter. Did they ever say his first name? 
Not that I saw. It's this Commander Hunter. He's a lieutenant commander. Yep. Commander Hunter. And there's a much older guy, a grizzled old sea dog, Gene Hackman, who plays Captain Frank Ramsey. And this will be a battle of their wills, and it's basically old versus young, old Navy versus new Navy, as they are thrust into this horribly uh, gray area situation underwater, whether they should launch a nuclear missile or not. Exactly right. Okay, so how does it start? So it starts with uh, Rachenko, right? Explain to people the, the back, the uh, setup for this movie. Sure. Well, the first off, the, the exciting words come across the screen. The three most powerful men in the world, the president of the United States, the president of the Soviet Union, and the captain of a U.S. nuclear missile submarine. And then it cuts to a French, a French aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean talking about how Russian rebel forces near Vladivostok have taken a base have taken a missile silo, have taken over some submarines with their forces, and it could lead to World War III. And it's very exciting. And the, Rachenko is actually the actor that plays him, if anyone likes Seinfeld. That was Mr. Kruger, George's boss on Seinfeld. <laughs> sort of went up the rails here to try to take over Russia, but good to see him. <laughs> I had no idea that was Mr. Kruger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was Mr. Kruger. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, this, this guy, Rachenko, he's like a – uh, a warlord in Russia. He has gathered a bunch of troops, and he's basically trying to start a civil war in Russia. He has grabbed a nuclear arsenal. He's grabbed a submarine base, and he says, basically, I'm going to start a war against anybody who tries to stop me, including the U.S. and Japan, and where, where you have an unstable warlord in Russia with access to the nukes, all of a sudden the U.S. government has to you know, start paying attention. And this is where Hunter Denzel Washington gets called into uh, active duty. Yeah, well, he's, he was already on active duty. He gets called in by Hackman, who has to have a number two, his executive officer, because the one on his current ship apparently came down with appendicitis, and he needed to replace him in short order, and Hunter was the man for the job. Okay, and here's the first time I will turn to you as my Navy expert here. Yep. So there's two commanders on a submarine, and it took me a viewing or two to really get this dichotomy down. There's the CO, the commanding officer, which would be Gene Hackman. Then there's the XO, the executive officer, who would be Denzel Washington. And I'm assuming that's pretty standard, right, on, on submarines? That is. There's a captain who, on an attack submarine, is actually a commander, but you call him captain. On a ballistic missile submarine like this one, the captain of the submarine is actually a captain, and the XO is a lieutenant commander, like you saw in the submarine. But here's the difference. On a, on a, a ballistic missile submarine like the USS Alabama, there are actually two crews. They didn't show this on the movie, but there's the gold crew and the blue crew. One crew goes out for two months. The other crew, crew is off training. They come back in, and then you switch. So you're always you're on two months. You're off two months. In real life, he wouldn't have had to interview this to find an XO. He would have just gone to the other crew and taken their XO, who was already trained on that submarine. But they just they just streamlined the movie and got rid of the second crew. Okay, that's good to know. I, I had no idea about that. Although it's implied that this guy, uh, uh, Captain Ramsey, Gene Hackman, goes through XOs like toilet paper. They're replaced all the time. <laughs> yes, and they said he, quote, has appendicitis. In other words, it sounds like he got fired, but who knows? <laughs> Now, what's the point of having two commanders on a submarine? Like, to the, to the layperson, it sounds like it would be confusing. Well, you, you don't have two commanders. The captain is in charge of the submarine, period. He is in charge. His number two is the executive officer. He does a lot of the administrative work. If something happens to the captain, he's trained to take over. But the captain is the number one guy. There is clear he's number one. Okay, so it's like a co-pilot on a plane. Exactly, yes. Okay. 
or like the vice president or like the vice president. Yes. Okay. For people who have not seen this movie, the ethics is going to come down to if you launch a nuclear missile from a U.S. nuclear submarine, you need two people to basically authenticate the order and turn the keys to launch the missile together. And the, what, what this movie will be is that what if they don't agree on the order? Exactly right. And we'll, we'll get to that later on on exactly what happened. But yes, both have to agree. That's the nuclear protocols. And it kind of broke down in this movie. And that that graphic that started at the at the that that flashed at the beginning is that accurate? The whole thing about a nuclear submarine commander being the third most powerful person in the world? It's really not because they can't really go rogue and launch nuclear missiles on their own. It's really almost a subset of the president because the president can give the order to fire the missiles. So okay. I would say no, it's not accurate. So that's just movie magic. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I think in the mid '90s, Bill Gates was probably number three. <laughs> he might have been number three. Yeah. I think Commander Captain Ramsey might have been number four. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, Denzel Washington plays this young man named uh, Lieutenant Commander Hunter. And again, he's very educated. He's been to Harvard, been through the Naval Academy. He's this new breed of soldier who studies philosophy and very well educated. And I'm assuming this is probably true. These are not the type of guys they would, would have wanted as submarine commanders back in the day because they're too intelligent. Would that be the right way to say it? It's well, yes and no. In order to be go on submarines, you need it's everyone on the submarine on the officer side has to qualify as Navy nuclear engineer. You basically get a master's degree in nuclear engineering jammed into your head in six months, except for the supply officer. So even Hackman in this is incredibly intelligent in order to get on submarines in the first place. They might not have gone to Harvard and everything, but these are some of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet. Okay. Although it's implied in the movie he's been on the submarine. He's been a commander for like 30 years. So, like, would it have been that way back in the 60s? Yeah, not so much. No, he would have probably had two or three stints as a captain, so captain of the submarine. So maybe 10 years he would have been actually commander of a submarine. But they take some liberties here. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, so we start with Denzel at home, and it's his uh, – Little girl's birthday party. He's got a nice little, you know, suburban middle class life. And they're watching on the news about this situation, about this possible civil war in Russia. And they say, like, uh, the tensions are as high now as they have been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's a big deal. And he gets called in. He's like, we need you to come in and interview for this XO position. And the other thing that's important is his friend. He's friends with this guy, Weps, right? Yeah, the weapons. That's not his name. The wet. He's the weapons officer on the USS Alabama, and he has to have a. He has a history and he, a good friendship with Denzel Washington before the movie starts. And he's played by actor Viggo Mortensen, right? Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I forgot how important he is in this movie, by the way, till I watched it today. Oh yeah, a lot of the movie hinges on him being very wishy-washy. We'll get to that. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so Weps, they just call him Weps, he's the weapons guy, he's Denzel's best friend, he will become very integral to the plot later because, again, it's who do you side with, who, in the, when the chain of command breaks down, who do you align with, who do you, who do you, who do you follow, so, and he will be very integral to the story later. And, and he smokes a lot, nonstop. <laughs> yeah. Is that common on submarines? It's it's not. They actually banned it in 2011 on all Navy ships. But on submarines, you could only smoke in one place, right near an air intake. So you were not there was not smoking all over the submarine like they depict in the movie. How about Gene Hackman having a little dog who pisses all over the boat? <laughs> yes, we all. I had a monkey on the submarine. No, there there's no. And, and here's an interesting Navy story. Right now, in breathing the air you're on, it's about 21 percent oxygen. 
on a submarine, you actually lower the oxygen down to about 19% for a couple reasons. One, it helps the crew sleep because it's, you know, you're very excited all the time. And secondly, it helps cut down on fires. But the downside on that is if you, if you brought a, a dog or a bird or a fish on a submarine, they're probably going to die because the oxygen is different than what they're used to. But <laughs> Hackman loves his dog bear. Okay, yeah, so here we go, the first big showdown of the movie, Gene Hackman against Denzel, and like David said, this whole movie is just a great actor showdown between two guys just absolutely dominating the screen, just staring each other down. And this is the interview where uh, Denzel gets called in, and we find out Hackman needs an XO, a second-in-command, and uh, so how does this scene go? So he calls him in, and he's, they're sparring a little bit. He's asking him what he's interested in. He says he rides horses. You know, they go back and forth and you get right off the bat with Gene Hackman. You get the idea that he is pretty full of himself. He knows what the right thing is. He's the man in charge. And he, he has a pretty interesting quote talking to Commander Hunter about horses. He says, yeah, horses are fascinating animals, dumb as fence posts, but very intuitive. And that way, they're not, not too different from high school girls. They might not have a brain in their head, but they know all the boys want to fuck them. So very, he says this in the opening interview to the very kind of put together, you know, refined Denzel Washington as he's taken back a little bit. Just, it made me wonder, who wants to fuck a horse? I mean, what was Gene Hackman, Ramsey doing in his free time? But whatever, interesting quote. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of sexy horses out in that side of the country. There are, but in the interview, it was obvious that he was going to get the job because Captain Ramsey's dog, Bear, which goes everywhere, really liked Denzel Washington's character, so... He was licking him and wagging his tail, so he approved. Okay, yeah, but this that's the general, you know, uh, drama in this movie. You have the old-school Navy guy against the young school, or the new school, Denzel. And even Gene Hackman, even, he, like, raises his eyebrows when he sees, you went to Harvard? Like, he could not fathom that a Navy submarine commander had gone to Harvard. And so, from the right from the start, it's the old guy with no experience, with no education, but a ton of war experience, and the young guy with a ton of theory and education, but no war experience. And it's going to be the struggle of the whole movie. And then Bear. Yeah, you said the captain, uh, Gene Hackman, has a little dog, Jack Russell Terrier, named Bear, who goes with him everywhere. And we, we will see several shots of him pissing on the boat. <laughs> And you know, one of the sailors, their only job is to clean off to, up after that stupid dog. <laughs> that, that is your introduction to the USS Alabama. You are on bare detail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to hell. Okay, so Gene Hackman hires Denzel as his number two, and they get ready to go off to this mission, which could theoretically end in World War III because they're talking about this guy, Rachenko, means business, and, like, he's not bluffing. He's going to fire these nuclear missiles he's got. And we go through a whole segment here where they explain what the, uh, what the stakes are here. What are some of the stakes that these guys are facing as they go out to possible war? Well, when they, when they go out to sea... Radichenko at the time does not have the nuclear codes, so he has the missiles, but he can't launch them. And they're concerned that he could get the codes. And once he gets the codes, within an hour of getting them, he could launch missiles. So if they launch nuclear missiles, it's the start of nuclear holocaust. Yeah, very much like we talked about in the War Games podcast. If one side launches nukes, the other side launches nukes, it's mutually assured destruction. So, yeah, this guy Radichenko is bad news. If he launches these nukes, that's maybe the end of the world, at least the superpowers. So, yeah, there, there's a lot at stake here. And this submarine, 
Uh, people, I, I'm guessing the average common the layperson doesn't understand how much firepower a nuclear submarine really has on it. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you saw, we've all seen the videos of what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On the ballistic missile submarines, they have typically 24 of those type missiles that are about 50 times stronger than what we dropped on Japan. So these things can do massive amounts of damage. They are just killing machines. Yeah, like someone, if you played like strategy games like Civilization, the nuclear subs are very powerful. But yeah, I don't think the average layperson realizes how much damage these things can do. And they're, they're portable. Like you can move these subs around silently around the world and just launch 25 times the amount of firepower that Hiroshima got right off their coast from the water. So yeah, that's the stakes here. Well, the, the other one of the inaccuracies of the movie is these missiles have... They 5,000 mile range on average. So generally in this situation, they would not have been right off of the Russian coast. They would have been a few hundred miles out to sea, just hiding, waiting for the order. They would not put, put themselves in harm's way, but that doesn't make as an exciting a movie. Okay, so what else do we learn? That Rachenko has a bunch of nuclear silos. He's got 60,000 men. He somehow has commandeered four attack subs, these Akula. Is that a real type of sub? That is a real attack submarine from the Soviets, yes. Okay, and he's got 25 ICBMs, and it's really just a matter of time until he compromises the launch codes. So the U.S. government is sending the submarine right off the coast of Russia, and Gene Hackman has so many great quotes here at the start. He says, that's why we have to go out there and give this Russian a moment of pause. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he's worried about Gene Hackman in particular. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, so anyway, uh, we go on the on the boat and everyone's getting ready and they're all talking about this guy Hackman, how he's a legend. And again, I, I cannot be reminded more of The Rock, where it's like Ed Harris. Oh, this guy was an amazing battalion commander in Vietnam. And it's the same thing in this one. Oh, this guy Hackman, it's a he's an amazing naval commander. So it's like, again, this movie was written by pretty much the same people, same producers, the same style. The Rock and Crimson Tide are so similar from that regard. Yeah, and I don't did you know that they actually Hackman was not the first choice for the role? Ooh, who was? They were looking at De Niro and um oh, shoot, what's his name? Played Bugsy. Um Oh, well, Warren Beatty. Yes. Yeah. Or Ricky Ricky Schroeder. <laughs> yes, Ricky Schroeder. And they, actually, they offered Val Kilmer one of the two lead roles. They never said which one, but he turned it down. I totally think he would have been Hunter. He's the younger guy. I, I think so, too. Yeah. Okay. Well, I wouldn't. Okay. So Warren Beatty, De Niro. Yeah, this is like this is a role that is written for a big name actor, this Gene Hackman role. He has he chews so much scenery. He commands so much screen time. And like all my first five pages of notes are all just Gene Hackman's speeches. <laughs> he does like his speeches yes in the rain okay so here we go the, the this is the big send-off speech where the submarine is going to be getting ready to go out to war go into the water well they'll be underwater for the next 60 days and again it's all speeches and david and i did one we quoted at the start of this podcast which is my personal favorite scene in the movie which which speech would you like to quote from gene hackman here <sighs> uh, you, you do this you do this one I, did, I don't have a good I, – I did. it was such a long quote. I didn't really write anyone down here. Okay. I will be talking for the next about two minutes here. I'm just quoting Gene Hackman. This is his inspirational quote to his men as they get on their submarine, the USS Alabama, the most deadly machine on the face of the earth as they go off to stop World War III. Gene Hackman, uh, uh, he faces all the men. He says, little ducks, there's trouble in Russia. So they called us. 
We're going over there, and we're bringing the most lethal killing machine ever devised. We're capable of launching more firepower than has ever been released in the history of war. For one purpose alone, keep our country safe. We constitute the front line and the last line of defense. I expect and I demand your very best. Anything less, you should have just joined the Air Force. <laughs> and they all laugh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm assuming all you Navy guys in the audience love that line. Yeah, we, that we laughed at that in the audience when we watched it, yes. Then Gene Hackman continues, This might be our commander-in-chief's Navy, but this is my boat! And all I ask is that you keep up with me. And if you can't, that strange sensation you'll be feeling in the seat of your pants will be my boot in your ass. And he goes up on the podium, and everyone's cheering, and the rain's swelling, and they do their little chant. Mr. Cobb! Yes, sir! You're in the Navy's ship, aren't you, Mr. Cobb? Very aware, sir! It bears a proud name, doesn't it, Mr. Cobb? Very proud, sir! It represents fine people! Very fine people, sir! We live in fine, outstanding status! And with that, they all go onto the ship in a big rousing moment of patriotism and American pride. Although, I have to point out, during that chant, uh, Denzel Washington is smirking because it's so corny. Yeah, he just he was laughing like the audience is never going to buy this, but whatever. <laughs> well, I have to think there's a little subtext there when they Gene Hackman's like saying, Alabama, the greatest place in the world with the greatest people. And there's probably a little subtext that the black guy's thinking, nah, not so much. I don't think so. I didn't notice the racial undertones of this movie until I rewatched it preparing for this podcast. I really didn't. Yeah, there's a couple. There's that, and there's a horse scene later in the movie, the black and white horse. A big one. Yeah, big one at the end, yeah. That's not the one where he's having sex with horses, right? No, no. That's <laughs> that's in the, the deleted scenes in the director's cut. Yeah, I really thought that was inappropriate, the horse sex scenes. <laughs> I could see why the Navy would not approve of this movie. Yes. Well, here, my question is this. His dog is named Bear after Bear Bryant, the coach of Alabama. So my question was, on his previous submarine, did he name his dog something else or did he have to get a new dog every submarine he goes on? Well, you said because of the air quality, the dog dies on every voyage. So he's getting <laughs> <laughs> that guy's like, like 40 years of little Jack Russell Terriers. He just tosses him in the ocean after each mission. <laughs> this is getting pretty dark for a uh, action movie. Yes. Okay, so with that, the uh, – oh, I guess I should explain this. Uh, people who are not sports fans may not realize the, the submarine is called the USS Alabama. Alabama's college football team is called the Crimson Tide, and their motto is Roll Tide. So that's the whole thing with this movie. They're doing a football chant, hence the name of the movie, Crimson Tide, which is the football team's nickname, the USS Alabama. I don't know. Hopefully you got all that. All right, so here we go. We're going out to sea. It's time for them to have their first conversation out on the boat, Hackman and Denzel, as they're getting ready to submerge. Yes, they're they're up on the conning tower, the captain, the exo, some enlisted guys. They're just, you know, talking about – the captain is talking, and Denzel is pretty, pretty much sitting there quietly and listening to the old man. He pulls out a cigar, gives it to Denzel. He asks if he likes it, and it's obviously Denzel's first cigar – 
But Hackman says, you've, you've really raised your stock with me because you knew to just shut up and enjoy the moment. Good job. You know, don't be a kiss ass to me and you'll maybe get your own submarine in the future. So gave them some fatherly words of advice before they dove the submarine. This leads to a question now. I want to lean on your knowledge a little. Is Gene Hackman representative of Navy or of like submarine captains that you would have known? Actually, yes, he is. Yeah, they're very, very sure of themselves, very confident. They don't we, – we have – we talk about this. We'll talk about it shortly about how ha, um, Hackman has his orders questioned by Denzel Washington, and it really pisses him off. And there is a saying in the Navy called loyalty up, loyalty down. If you disagree with your captain, you owe it to the crew to go talk to the captain. You do it in private. If you then in that room – you disagree. If the captain says this is the order, you walk out and you have loyalty to the captain up. When you walk out, it's your order as well. You don't ever badmouth the captain. A little bit of that doesn't happen in this movie, which really pisses off Hackman. But yes, he's very similar to some captains I've had. Okay, now I guess we'll follow that up. Have, did you ever know any commanders like Denzel Washington? I have, yes. Yes. I mean, you see you see the whole range. I mean, you see the old school kind of gung ho guys and the ones that are more book smart. You see the range between. Well, yeah. And the most interesting thing I think about this movie is I think if people have not watched it recently and maybe only once, they would think, oh, Denzel's the good guy and Hackman's the bad guy. But like when you watch this movie, it's a lot more even handed than that. There's not really a bad guy. Yeah, Hackman doesn't go full villain until about the last 15 minutes of the movie when he seems to lose his mind. But up until that point, it's you could really debate who's right, who's wrong. I mean, the Navy rules are actually pretty clear in this case. But for the audience member watching it, yeah, it's it's very much a 50-50 proposition. Okay. Yeah, I'm dying to get into the ethics here. Okay, let's let's. Okay, so we go to the first scene, the first day underwater. All the entire rest of the movie will be underwater in the sub, so there's not a whole lot of scenery. But uh. So the first scene we see is the dinner conversation where all the officers on the first night underwater are just sitting there talking about the ethics of war. And this is one of my personal favorite scenes in the movie, just because I think it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty cool talking about the ethics of war. And he's obviously he's goading Denzel Washington's character a little bit to get him to talk about the theory and everything else, almost to try to embarrass him in, the re- in front of the rest of the officers in the officer's wardroom. And, you know, he doesn't really take the bait and he ha- handles himself pretty well. But Hackman and a lot of the officers, especially James Gandolfini, who is pretty good in this movie, he is just a, a nut to go to war. They're really pushing the war side of it. And Command- Lieutenant Commander Hunter is very much in the you need to be smart here because you go to nuclear war, everyone's going to die. Yeah, okay, so some of the, the conversations that come up here is they're just talking about this Rachenko guy, this, you know, warlord fanatic over in Russia, and they're saying, well, this guy's a potential Hitler. We can't have him. you got to just nuke him, just kill him. And one of the other guys says, well, you know, fanatics can be good too. Patton, on our side, he was a fanatic and he was a hero. And so it really gets into some fascinating debates over, like, what's ethical in warfare, what should be allowed. And uh, someone points out, you know, we're America. We're the only country that's ever nuked anybody. So what does that make us? Like, we're calling him a crazy person. We're the only ones who've ever used it before. Yeah, and they bring up some very interesting ethical points. Yeah, this is, again, why I think this movie is leaps and, bu- and bounds above what it should be, like compared to other like submarine action movies. This is, there's so many more thoughtful debates and lines of dialogue in here you wouldn't expect to see in a movie like this. 
Yeah, it's, it's surprisingly intelligent for a ex- action movie. Yeah. yeah, for a Simpson Bruckheimer movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you would not expect perhaps the ethical dilemma and the uh, philosophy spouted here, but yeah, okay. So they talk about this is where, like you said, Hackman is trying to draw Denzel's theories on war out because he wants to embarrass this guy who has never actually faced a combat situation, and it starts with a very interesting, you know theoretical question he just asked mr hunter he's like so uh do you think hiroshima was a mistake and denzel has a very qualified answer for that yeah i forget exactly what he said but hackman says that's an interesting answer because it's very qualified very you know he didn't just say yes or no because if they ask me goddamn right yes you nuke them you position yourself with some options well denzel's answer is if i thought that hiroshima was a mistake i wouldn't be here and Gene Hackman just kind of laughs. And he's like, it's very interesting the way you put that, very carefully. And Hackman says, you know, somebody asked me, should we have dropped the nuclear bomb? I'm like, yes, absolutely. Drop that fucker twice. <laughs> like, I don't even think twice about it, but you think about it. And he's like, this is the difference between you and me. In my day, they didn't want us to know the why of warfare. They just wanted us to push the button. You, they expect to know the why first. And Denzel, for his part, is kind of horrified that someone wouldn't know the why. Yeah, and the fact that he's not even asking the question, it makes him kind of sick. And this is the first scene where you really see Denzel Washington show respect to the captain with his words, but his eyes, you can just tell this dude, something's off with him. Yeah, and there's a really, the, the great quote here, a little actor's scene at the end where they're t- they're quoting some guy. Who is this guy they quote? Uh, I didn't write his name down. Some philosopher on warfare. I didn't know the guy's name either. I don't okay, know. but he's somebody that Gene Hackman has clearly quoted for years, and he says, you know, war is just a continuation of politics by other means. Yeah. And Denzel says, yeah, that's not what he meant. So they argue, start arguing what the guy meant. And it's, it's funny, as this is happening in the background, the other officers are looking at Denzel Washington like, holy shit, you, you don't, what are you doing? Like, just shut up and let the old man talk. Don't disagree with him. Yeah. First day on the boat, you do not question the captain. <laughs> loyalty up, loyalty down, asshole. Yes. So, yeah, they talk about the nature of warfare and what it means. And Hackman says, you know, the person who's best at warfare is the one who can abandon all his ethics and commit to total war- warfare. And Denzel says, no, the goal of modern warfare in the in the modern age with the nuclear age is to avoid war altogether because that is the true enemy warfare itself and they really do not see eye to eye on this at all no they don't which is is kind of funny like but hackman hired him you know did he have no other choices to pick instead of picking this guy who he obviously does not respect but who knows (laughs) ricky schroeder once again second on the list did not make the cut exactly And I'm talking Ricky from Silver Spoons, the character, not the actor. (laughs) I understood. (laughs) So here we go. From here on out, it's just a slow descent of these two men not understanding each other or getting each other at all. And it starts on day three when there's a fire in the galley. But before that, I have to tell you, they're patrolling off the sea. And if if your first instance of seeing Ryan Phillippe, it's his very first movie, Ryan Phillippe, future Mr. Reese Witherspoon, and he's laying in his bed. What's he doing? He's staring at his tank of goldfish that he brought on the submarine, which is complete bullshit. But anyway, <laughs> please continue. I didn't realize that was Ryan Phillippe. So he's the goldfish starer. Oh, yeah. And later on, you'll see him crying in his bed as well. It's very exciting. <laughs> 
So they did not allow full gold, uh, tanks of goldfish on submarines. Well, I guess if you could bring a, 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 your dog on, they just let anything happen at that point. <laughs> at one point, Hackman's riding a horse through the submarine. <laughs> okay, so I, I guess I didn't realize the uh, physics of a fish tank perhaps not working. But yeah, so there is some BS with the fish tank there. A little bit. Oh, oh, I should point out, though, this movie is like a that guy's paradise of just actors you know from other stuff. You mentioned Ryan Phillippe. We got Ricky Schroeder. Steve Zahn is in here. He would later be a bigger name after this movie. You have uh, Viggo Mortensen. You have James Gandolfini, again, from The uh, the Sopranos. You mentioned him. Yep, and there's a couple other ones. There's a couple of uh, the, um, the Navig uh, – I'm sorry. The, I forget his name. The guy who becomes the XO later for about 30 seconds with glasses. I don't remember his name. but He's a that guy. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, there's a lot of big names kind of floating around in the back. Oh, uh, Eric Bruscott, or the one guy, the big hillbilly-looking dude. He gets in the fight over the Silver Surfer. He's in a ton of movies in that era of the 80s and 90s in, like, Starship Troopers. Just he's one of those guys. Oh, yeah, that's where he's from. Starship Troopers. I couldn't. And George Zaniga, the chief of the boat, the cob. He's great in this movie. He's one of those guys as well. Yeah, so this whole, again, The Rock is like that too. The the best characters of The Rock are some of the side actors. You don't even realize, hey, that's Candyman. What's he doing in there? <laughs> Tony Todd, yes. Okay, so anyway, day three, this is the fire. So explain the uh, personality conflict here that happens with the fire slash missile drill. So the, the cooks are in the galley cooking, and there's a big fire that just explodes out of nowhere. They all dive out of the way. They're trying to put out the fire. And Denzel Washington, Commander Hunter, comes running, puts on his fire suppression suit. He goes in there, and he eventually hits the fire suppression button to put out the fire. He calls up that the fire is out, and Gene Hackman, the captain, immediately does a missile test. <laughs> so there's people in danger. There's actually... One of the sailors is going to die here in a second because of the fire. But Gene Hackman decides this is the perfect time to make use of the confusion that's going on in the submarine. Let's test the people and do an emergency action message missile drill. Completely stupid, but he's going to do it. Denzel Washington is not happy about it, pulls the captain aside during the drill and very quietly says, Captain, this fire could still come back. We should think about this. And Hackman just about loses his mind. Okay, you dropped a term in there that some of the lay people may not know. What's an EAM, an emergency action message? So if you are on a ballistic missile submarine and you come up about 150 feet, you can put up an antenna and you can get very confidential, high-importance messages from Navy Command. They're called emergency action message. It could be go to this location. It could be come back. It could be fire a missile. But it's a top-secret message that comes down it's called an EAM, Emergency Action Message. Okay, and that's realistic. That's what they do in real life? It is, yes. Okay, and for people who have maybe not seen this movie, that's a very uh, important plot point. When these EAMs come to the submarine, you drop everything you do and you must follow this order immediately because the president or the people in the Pentagon have ordered you to do something. This is very important. So these EAMs will become very important later in the plot. And it's not just that. It's not just the message. They have to break open special codes, make sure the codes in the submarine match the codes on the message that came in. So that, because it, otherwise it could be a fake message from a, a, you know, a combatant out there that's not the United States. So you got to go through all these protocols to make sure that the EAM is legitimate. And that plays a part here shortly. Yeah, especially on a nuclear submarine. Like if you're going to be launching nukes, you better be sure that's a real order. And that's where the, that, that, that's where the plot's going to come up later. Yeah, you don't want to say whoops. We shouldn't have done that. Okay, yeah. So 
that the captain has called for a test drill to drill the people in the sub if they had to launch a missile in the middle of this fire just because he likes chaos. He's like, you should not embrace, you should not be scared of chaos because sometimes in the fog of war, you have to launch a missile. So he likes to run drills during times like this, which I'm guessing is probably not realistic. A, a, a real commander probably wouldn't do that. Well, a we would use okay on a submarine. You're on 18-hour days. You're on engineering duty. You're um, duty in the front of the submarine for six hours. You're doing paperwork and stuff for six hours. And you sleep for six hours. So you're on an 18-hour rotation. You have drills all the time. So there are days when you don't you don't sleep for you know two or three days at a time. You're always doing drills, and the captain sometimes does it not when there's a real fire, but it could be in the middle of movie night. It could be at two in the morning because you don't know when something like that's going to happen. So it's not unusual to do something off hours or unusual, but you would, you would never do it when a real emergency had just happened. No way. Okay. I, I do have a question though. You said there's 18 hour days on the sub and six of those are sleeping. What are the other six hours? <laughs> so typically on a submarine, you are as an officer, you send six hours on watch. So either in the engineering plant, running the nuclear power plant or in the front of the submarine, you know, telling them to turn left, turn right, go up and go down or something else. Six hours, you're running your division. So I was in charge of like the the maintenance guys up front. So you're working with them on fixing equipment or doing paperwork or things like that. And then six hours of, you know, off time to sleep. And, of course, 30 minutes per day to clean up the captain's dog's shit, right? <laughs> yes, that, that's – yeah. Okay, here's another question. We're delving away from the movie here. How long does it take you not to be claustrophobic on a submarine? Well, it's, it's funny. So on the officer side of things, at least at the Naval Academy, before your junior year, you spend two weeks of your summer – doing pilot training, two weeks with the Marines, two weeks on surface ships, two weeks in submarines. So if you are claustrophobic in any way, you know it after those two <laughs> weeks, and you don't volunteer to be on submarines. Submarines for the officers enlisted is completely voluntary. And at least at the Naval Academy, in the beginning of your senior year, you have to go into Washington, D.C. and do all types of engineering interviews with all the people that designed the nuclear power plants on submarines. If you step on the bus to go to those interviews, you are committed to submarines if they want you. So literally at five in the morning, I, there were people standing outside the bus wavering if they want to step on because they're not sure if they really want to be on submarines or not. But you're not claustrophobic if you're on a submarine. Okay, good to know, because I know many people listening to this horrified of just the image of people being in a submarine for this entire movie for 60 days. Well, I got to tell you, Mario, I mean, that was 60 days I was out to sea for, you know, four to six months at a time. And what they show you on these submarines, it looks claustrophobic. It's much worse than that in real life. It, it's they make it look much bigger than it really is. <laughs> OK, well, you got to get the fish tank in there. So it has to be fairly big. Yeah. Okay, so we've had the fire drill or the, the fire in the galley and the missile drill and Denzel and Gene Hackman have already argued the ethics of that. You shouldn't be doing that. The fire was the number one priority. And this is where I wrote in my notes, it's ass chewing time where Denzel gets chewed out for daring to question the captain's orders in front of the other men. He does. He calls him in. He rips him up and down. And Denzel just sits there and takes it and just glares daggers through him. And, he, and Hackman has a great quote at the end. He says, we're here to preserve democracy, not practice it. <laughs> just a great line. <laughs> I'm going to use that as the stinger at the end. I already decided of this episode. That's my favorite quote in the movie. Mine, too. 
Okay, yeah, so Gene Hackman says, basically, when I give an order, you repeat it. That is how the chain of command works on a submarine. There could be no delay. You can't challenge me. You can't question me. And he says here, basically, that we know... We're sending, we have a bunch of boys. These are 18, 19, 20-year-old boys out on a submarine. We may be asking them to start World War III. They have to be okay with that and know it's the right thing to do. And the only way they know that is if I say one thing, you agree with me, and they follow the orders. And it's and, and Denzel agrees with that. That's right. He's totally, he's been in the wrong for questioning Hackman. He doesn't, he does, he, at the start, we realized from the start that Hackman is not crazy. He knows what he's doing here. Yeah, he's... He comes across as an ass, but he's not wrong yet. <laughs> okay, that'll be the question. At what point in this movie does he go wrong? Okay. But another Hackman quote, he's like, well, you think I'm just some crazy old coot putting people in danger and yelling yee-haw? <laughs> Denzel's like, that was not my first thought, sir. <laughs> it's a great line. <laughs> okay, so here we go. That's the first thing, but now Denzel has been put in place. He knows the number two always follows the number one. And from here on out, the conflict is going to slowly get worse and worse. What are some things that happen here before the incident? Um, Denzel Washington leaves. It goes down to the officer's wardrobe and is talking to Weps, who has spent, he was very good at ironing his clothes. He's sitting there ironing for about five minutes. It's really funny. And Weps basically says, dude, you're on the submarine. Learn to live with him. You can't question him. That's how it has to be. So that continues. Yeah, Webbs does have a good speech here. He says, you know, Hunter is complaining about Gene Hackman, and Webb's already saying, don't complain about the captain on this boat. You don't want that people to hear that. He's like, you know, this guy, he's all old school Navy, and to, to you, you're probably a threat because you're young, but you're all theory and you're educated, and he's probably very threatened by someone like you. So Webb's gives him some advice. Just nod your head, do what the old man says. And he's like, this is all this old guy has in his life. His wife left him. He's got nothing but the Navy. So, Well, no, no, no. He has the Navy and his little rat dog. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. My apologies to Bear. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the advice. Just let the captain get to know you. And so Denzel's like, okay, okay, I can do that. So that that's going to set the dynamic. It's like this old, overbearing father. He just wants to be proud of you as his son. So that's how they're trying to set up this relationship. Yes. Okay, so here here's where we go down to DEFCON 3. This is where it's shit starts to get real here. Yep. So the hackman, they get an emergency action message that comes in saying that the guy, he's broken the codes. Oh, my God. They now have the potential to fire nuclear weapons. DEFCON 3 has been has been called and they're going to continue to patrol and they might have to go to even higher alert down the road. So there's a lot of stress going on in the submarine right now. Very, very high tensions. Now, we talked about this in my War Games podcast. This is the defense conditions in the United States. It's normally DEFCON 5. The closer and closer you get to nuclear war, that's DEFCON 1. And DEFCON 1 is nuclear war. DEFCON 4, I think, the only time it's been there is the Cuban Missile Crisis. And now, because Rachenko has these nuclear codes and he's threatening to launch, it's gone down to DEFCON 3. And now the sub is being positioned in a place to start doing a preemptive strike. And so now everybody on the ship is starting to get tense because shit's getting real here. Yeah, and actually a fight breaks out in the crew between two two enlisted officers. They're punching each other. And this is when the Tarantino dialogue comes in. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, this has got to be one of the Tarantino scenes. So explain this scene to people. Sure. So one of the guys named Ravetti, who later on comes back and helps um, Denzel Washington, he's fighting 
a guy named Benefield, who is the guy from Starship Troopers. You don't know why, but Denzel Washington comes up and says, you know, what are you doing? You're a supervisor. You shouldn't be fighting. What was it about? The guy doesn't want to tell him. And he says, you know, that's not an option. Tell me what you happened. And they were arguing about which version of the Silver Surfer from the comic books is the correct Silver Surfer. <laughs> Denzel Washington looks at him and says, well, of course it's the one you want, but you still can't start a fight. So he he befriends the the enlisted petty officer there, and that really pays dividends later in the movie. Yeah, there's definitely a couple scenes in this movie where the guys start going into pop culture speak. This one, there's one earlier on the boat or on the bus when they're talking about who was the Navy commander in this movie. Like, it's all, you know, Tarantino wrote all those scenes. Yeah, there's a the Star Trek dialogue later on, I'm sure it was his. Oh, the Star Trek stuff's great. I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and actually, this is the point in the movie when it almost goes real time, because when Radichenko gets the codes, he has, from that point, there's about an hour until he can fire his missiles, so the movie is almost real time from here until the end. Okay, yeah, we've done about an hour of the movie, and there's about an hour left, yeah, and it's really an hour real time, yeah, that's, that's a good point, I hadn't thought of that. Again, this this is yeah. a very tense movie once it gets going. It's so engrossing because it's it's like an episode of 24. It's real time and there's huge stakes here. So, uh, yeah, so Denzel, we learn, is good with the crew. He can defuse fights. He can talk to the men. And he goes to the captain, the crazy old captain. He's like, you know, the men are a little on edge right now. And Hackman, this is a great scene. He's like, oh, really? Oh, the men are on edge? Well, here, let me talk to them. And he picks up the intercom and addresses the whole ship. And he basically, to paraphrase, says, you pussies, we're at DEFCON 3. Fucking wise up or get off my ship. <laughs> and what does, what does Denzel Washington say to him? Very inspiring, sir. <laughs> okay, from here on out, we are now halfway through the movie, and from here on out, it's just all tension the entire rest of the movie. We go to day 12, and this is where the incident happens, although it's incidents. There's multiple incidents. Two things happen at the same time. The, the radar people on the Alabama notice there's an, a Russian attack sub nearby. The sonar, just, you know, it's the sonar people. Sonar, sorry. All right, so the sonar people realize there's a Russian sub nearby, and at the same time, we get another emergency action plan, an EAP message that says, oh, by the way, Rachenko is now fueling his nuclear missiles, so now you have the order to launch. Launch your nukes. Yes, that comes in. They cut to Ryan Philippi laying in his bed during battle stations, which that everyone's up working, but he's in bed, and he's sitting there crying. That was a great scene. <laughs> And when that happens, they get the emergency action message, and another one starts to come in not too long after, but they're too deep to get it. And that's when the whole conflict really elevates. Yeah, this is the crux of the movie, that the sub has been given the orders to launch their nuclear arsenal, start World War III. They've been given an order from the president, it's confirmed, and then in all the excitement as they're trying to avoid this other sub that's trying to fire a torpedo at them, uh, the, a second message comes through, but the submarine is so deep in its evasive maneuvers, it doesn't get the full second message. And the second message could confirm that first order, or it could retract, and they don't know which one it is. And that's going to be the conflict for the entire rest of this movie. What the hell was that second message trying to tell us? 
Yeah, that's that's the really the whole rest of the movie right there. Yeah. So here we go. So they've been given the orders to launch their nukes, but they're trying to avoid this submarine, this Russian sub coming after them. We go down to DEFCON 2 for the first time in recorded history. And like, it's just so tense in the submarine because everyone knows they're about to start World War Three. But first, they got to get away from this attack sub, which is a far more imminent threat to them. Yeah, they do it. They they avoid it. And Denzel Washington says to Hackman, you know, we need to find out what the second message says. And Hackman has complete disdain for this. But he's but um, Hunter Denzel Washington says, let's put up the buoy. You know, we can float a buoy. We can see what the message is. And he, the captain grudgingly says, fine, go ahead and do it. So they put out the buoy. And as the buoy is going out, it's making it something happens. It gets caught. and It makes a lot of screeching noise and underwater. And what happens when there's a lot of sound underwater? Another submarine can find you. That's exactly what happened. The Akula finds them because of Denzel Washington putting out the buoy. Yeah, Denzel screws up. I kind of forgot about that. He didn't screw up. I would say Hackman screwed up because they didn't do the proper maintenance on the buoy. Hunter did the right thing by putting out the buoy. Oh, you're just a Hunter apologist. (laughs) Please. Yeah, again, it's all ethics from here on out, what the the correct strategy is, because, again... The old guy, Hackman, is very driven towards war. This is what we're here to do. Hunter, Denzel, is very anti-war. We must stop war at all costs. We don't want to do anything rash. And they have a partial message saying you might want to fire, you might not. They're not entirely sure what the chain of command is here. And they're going to be fighting over this the entire rest of the movie. Although, yeah, first got to get away from this, this uh, Akula sub because it's going to try to blow them out of the water here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're coming after him. And they're going to come after him hard. Yeah, and and then uh, Hackman even says, Denzel's like, we need to go up to the surface to get this message. And Hackman's like, I have to defend my ship. There's another sub trying to sink me. Shut up. Get out of my way. I will do what I'm going to do to protect my men. So Hackman is very much, I think, in the right still at this point. At this, at this point, he's in the right. I mean, he has a message that says you fire your nuclear missiles they have a partial fragment that really says nothing. They can't authenticate it. He is an active order. That's when I was saying earlier, everyone in the Navy says you have to fire the missiles. I mean, that's, that is your responsibility. But, you, but if you do it, you end the world. So you can also see Denzel's Washington side of it. Yeah, but I could totally see why soldiers would see that one way and civilians would see it as the other way. I can totally see that. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So they avoid the Russian sub. The Russians fire the torpedoes and they miss because uh, Gene Hackman deploys these evasive maneuvers and and doesn't get hit. But in all the the commotion underwater, their communication satellite has been damaged. So now they can't get any communications from above, and plus they're way down below. They can't get anything. So they're flying blind at this point, and all they know is they've been given an order to start World War Three, and and Denzel is like the only one on the ship questioning if this is a good idea. It is. And the only way they can get the message is to go up to about 150 feet, uh, Paris, you know, come up to periscope depth or slightly below that. But Gene Hackman, the captain, says, we're not doing that. That's an enemy sub right there. We're not going up, moron. And there's, again, just Hackman and Denzel showdowns here where Gene Hackman's like, we have orders in hand. The chain of command says your last order you follow. I don't care what that second message says. It didn't come through, so it's not an order. And uh, he's just fighting with Denzel. And Denzel says, you know, we have a duty 
not to launch unless we can confirm. That's our duty as human beings. And Hackman says, no, we have a duty not to assume that there are other submarines around us that can do this. We may be the only ones here. They could all be taken out. We have no idea what the situation. And then he basically, Denzel keeps, you know, arguing. And Hackman just says, the rules are not open to interpretation. I've made a decision. I'm the captain of this boat. Now shut the fuck up. <laughs> That's a great, it's one my second favorite line of the movie. And the men are just horrified on the sub. They've never seen an XO and a CO argue like this. And they're looking around. They're like, um, this should not be happening on a nuclear sub. <laughs> yeah, can I crawl under my paddle, please? And here we go to the mutiny. This is the first. There's like a bunch of big scenes from here on out. This is the first one where they finally decide who's going to be the captain in control here. Exactly. And this is this is the first this is when Hackman starts to go off the rails, because up until this point, he's a dick. He's a jerk. But he's right. This point, when Denzel Washington won't agree and second his command to fire the missiles, Hackman says, you're fired, you're arrested. I'm replacing you with someone else. At that point, he's wrong. He cannot do that because by Navy law, you need both of them to agree. Just because the guy doesn't agree, you can't just keep going down the line to find someone who does. That's why you have the dual authorizations that are required. And when he orders them to fire the XO and take him into custody, the chief of the boat, who is the captain's guy, has to make the decision because he knows what the captain's doing is wrong. And when Denzel Washington says, I am now in command, place the captain under arrest, the cop goes along with them which was an interesting turn of events. Okay, well, let's delve into this for a second. And I'm just going to sum this up for people who may not be familiar with this movie. Again, to launch a missile, a nuclear missile from a submarine, you must have the commanding officer and the EXO agree on it. What if in real life they don't agree? Now, I'm curious what the protocol is if they don't agree. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I mean, I know, I know the Navy doesn't like this movie because they're like, oh, that would never happen. But in theory, we've come up with a situation in the screenplay, which is very interesting because what if it did happen? I honestly, I can't even answer that question. I don't really know because the, that wouldn't happen in the Navy. It would, it's either so clear one way or it's so clear the other where it's not going to be in the middle like this. There's no chance. Okay. I mean, that's a fair answer because, again, they have to, you know, <laughs> move heaven and earth in the storyline to make a scenario where they only get a half message. So it's very unlikely that would happen in real life. But I'm just curious what the protocol would be. Uh, at that point, they wouldn't fire the missiles and they would go back in port and one of them would probably be fired because you can't you can't just keep going down the line to find someone to say yes. Okay. And I'll, I'll, I'll paint a picture for people who might not know this movie. What happens is Hackman says, we're firing. Denzel says, no, we're not. And Hackman says, you don't agree with me. You're fired. Arrest him. And that in itself is a breach of protocol. And Denzel knows that. And he says, you cannot fire your XO. I'm putting you under arrest for breaking Navy protocol. And he has the chief of security, Cobb, arrest Gene Hackman, a legendary submarine commander. And it's like this huge showdown over who's in charge. And like all the men are like having to take sides real quick. And they've never seen this before. Yeah, it's funny. After they arrest Hackman, Hunter or Denzel Washington goes up to the chief of the boat and thanks him for helping him. And he looks at Denzel Washington. He's like, thank you. Fuck you. Get it straight. I'm not on your side. You could be wrong, but right or wrong, he can't just replace you. That's why I did what I did. Yeah. 
Cobb is, again, the number one security officer, Gene Hackman's right-hand man. He has sided with Denzel Washington, but for legal reasons, not for because it's his friend. And he says, you know, we can't launch until the XO confirms that's military law, that's naval law. Like, if he tries to launch without your consent, he's committing a war crime. So, yeah, I have to arrest him. So, yeah. So, at this point, all the legal, everything legally, I think, Hackman has crossed the line and Denzel's probably correct, right? Yeah, exactly. At this point. Although Hackman, as he's arrested and pulled off to his uh, cell, he says, you know, you're out of your league, Hunter. You're not ready to make tough decisions. That seems like a pretty, yeah, that's a pretty tough decision he just made, by the way, but whatever. (laughs) I would think, yeah, arresting the commanding officer of a nuclear submarine. That's a big power move. Yeah. Although here we go. A hunter is going to be put to the test. And this is what I love about this movie is we will ping pong at least four times the rest of the movie. Who's actually in charge of the ship as they will keep getting control over the other one. But right from the start, Hunter is put to the test because the Akula sub is coming after them again. Yeah, he gets no time to take a breath. It's I'm the new you know, commanding officer. The Akula's back and they're launching torpedoes within 15 seconds. It's crazy. I kind of forget the details. The Akula turns around towards them. Denzel says we're so close to them, their torpedoes won't be armed yet, so let them fire. The torpedoes fire, they're not they're not armed, so it's like a brilliant move. But still, in the chaos, the submarines take some damage from some uh, tertiary explosion, and they lose their entire communication satellite altogether. Yeah, the... Um... Denzel Washington fires torpedoes back and actually destroys the Akula. They're all cheering, but then the sonar says, wait a second, before they got blown up, they launched one final torpedo, and here it comes. So it it comes, it explodes right by the Alabama, and their propulsion goes out. So they're sitting there dead in the water sinking. Yes, and anybody who has ever seen a submarine movie knows there will be a scene at some point where the submarine sinks and starts going into hole crush depth which is a wonderful term. Yes. What's the exact measurement, you know, where, where the Hulk just basically implodes? I, I can't tell you. <laughs> That's actually, when you leave the Navy, there's certain things on submarines you cannot share. Um, that You can't talk about that. <laughs> okay. Well, I know from the movie, it's 1,800 feet, or a plus or minus. And so, yeah, so the, Alabama, so the nuclear sub is gone. The Alabama is sinking now with Hunter, Denzel in charge, and they have no propulsion. And he has to make his first big decision that we were taking in water, there was a big hole. He had basically has to seal a bunch of men into their death. He has to order the death of these men in the in the engine room to save the boat. Exactly right. Yeah, the bilge bay was flooding, and they're down there trying to you know stop the flooding. And you know Steve Zahn is down there, and Ricky Schroeder's up there. You know, champ. And Denzel Washington is telling him, you seal that goddamn bay right now. That's an order. And he has to do it. And the men down there drown. And it's Ricky Schroeder that does it, right? He turns the wheel. He does. He does to kill him. And Mario, I got to tell you, this is one of the these scenes that is pretty inaccurate. If this ever happened on a real submarine, you would do what's called an emergency blow. You blow high pressure air between the inner and outer hull. And it basically forces out all the water and you pop to the surface like a cork. They don't they don't talk. They don't do it because it's much more exciting to talk about crush depth. But that's what they would have done in real life. I thought an emergency blow is what they would get on shore leave. (laughs) I knew you were going to go there. (laughs) 
you set me up perfectly. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So in the movie, yeah, there's all there's a part of the boat that's damaged, and Hunter has to order Ricky Schroeder to seal them into their death. Which again, not accurate, but it does make a very gripping scene to prove that Hunter can indeed make the hard choices when he has to. Yeah, he's made a lot of hard choices in his ten minutes as captain. <laughs> <laughs> and Ricky Schroeder has now killed like twelve people. <laughs> Good old Ricky. <laughs> it's now a spree. Yes. And I think that's, that's the last we'll see of Ricky Schroeder for the rest of the movie, right? Yeah, he's gone, but James Gandolfini emerges at this point. Oh, Gandolfini's so great in this. Oh, he's he is the one person in this movie that the whole movie, he's just sitting there going, God, I want a nuclear war. I want a nuclear war. That's all he wants. Yeah, Gandolfini, one of these guys that was floating around in Hollywood before The Sopranos. I, 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 he must be in other movies. I don't remember him. But, yeah, when you know who he is and you go back and watch Crimson Tide, hey, that's that guy. Yeah, he's great. He's the, he's the big villain in this movie, really. <laughs> he, he is. He's, he loses it. Okay, so Gandolfini, what, what is his name? I forget his name. Oh, what is what is Gandolfini? He's the supply officer. Oh, he's Bobby Doherty, Lieutenant Doherty. Okay, so Bobby Doherty is going to take over here. Is that you know everything has been saved? You know the Alabama is saved. The Russian attack sub is gone. We're going to float back up to the surface. We're going to fix the propulsion. We can get that second message, and everything should be good. We've averted World War Three, but now this guy Doherty Gandolfini is going to go free Gene Hackman from his cell and stage the second mutiny in about ten minutes. Yeah, and he goes, talks to him, he says, Captain, what do you need? He says, go get this guy, this guy, this guy, and you have to get Weps or it's not going to work. <laughs> so they go down and get Weps. So Weps, who, if you remember, he's Denzel Washington's best friend, and so he and a couple other officers, Gandolfini and some others, go down and try to convince Weps, join our second mutiny to take out Denzel Washington. You know, it's, it's the right thing to do. And I know you're a Survivor fan, Mario, the Weps in this case, every couple seasons on Survivor, you know, there's one person, they just kind of float. Whoever talks to them last before Tribal Council or at Tribal Council, that who's, that's who they're going to vote with. That's Weps <laughs> in, this, in this movie. <laughs> Whoever gets to Weps right now, he's going to go with them. Oh, my God, he's sugar. He's right in the middle. He is sugar. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so Viggo Mortensen, the key to this plot is he, like – uh, well, I forget his his position on the boat, but like he is in charge of he's all. Wep the he's weapons officer. He's a weps. Oh, weps. That's right. Yeah. So he's in charge of all the munitions. So they need him to get all this supply of guns that are on the boat. Go free Gene Hackman, and we're gonna go confront Denzel and his crew in the control room. So here we go. <laughs> weps wants to hold out. He wants to do the right thing, but they eventually convince him. You know, this is naval law. Gene Hackman needs you. The commander needs to be in control of the ship. This guy Denzel doesn't know what he's doing. So Weps eventually says yes, and he gives them all the guns on the boat. And here we go. It's time for Gene Hackman to take the boat over again. He is, and I just got to say, it's funny. When Gandolfini gets a gun, he, he is so aroused. You can just see it on his face. Like, this is the greatest fucking thing ever. Yeah, it's, I, I keep making parallels to The Rock, but he's like those two mercenary soldiers at the end that just want to kill people. He's exactly the same. I've got a gun, yes. <laughs> okay, so... All the uh, security detail frees the captain, and the captain goes up to take over the ship. And I know Denzel, up on the bridge, notices that people are disappearing. And he's like, uh-oh, they're, they're planning a mutiny against me. And so what does he do here? He, uh... he goes and gives the, the guy, he, the silver surfer guy, the sonar guy, he goes and gives him keys 
and basically says, you know, keep these safe. And because he knows he's about to be taken out again by Ramsey and put into custody. Okay, so here we go. So, yeah, and Denzel's last move before he is relieved of command again is he goes to this young guy, this radar tech named Vossler, who has never been in this movie, I don't think, up to this point. And Denzel's yeah. like, you need to fix this radio. We need to know what that second EAP message was, if it was a confirmation of the attack or to pull back our nuke. So fix this radio. And the kid is like, like 17. He has no idea what's going on. And this is where the Star Trek thing comes in, right? Yeah, he says, you, you like Star Trek? You're Scotty. I need warp speed. I need you to fix this radio or a billion people are going to die. I know it's a shitty deal, but you got to do it. You're Scotty. We need more power. We need warp speed. Yep, exactly. Okay, so Tarantino probably wrote that script, that part right there. Oh, and not just that. Tarantino's, I think, buddy in high school was named Vossler. That's where this name came from. (laughs) I did not know that. Thank you. There you go. Okay, so here we go. It's the big showdown in the command center where Hackman and his men show up with guns, and Denzel's there with his men, and they have guns, and it's a surprisingly not written by Tarantino, this part, but it's a Mexican standoff where they're all pointing guns at each other. And even Weps, even Weps has joined the Gene Hackman side, and Denzel is pissed. He just glares at Weps. You, they got you, and, like, Weps can't even look him in the eye. And so Denzel is arrested and thrown into the brig along with Cobb, and now Hackman's back in control again. He is, and in a second we're going to have another mutiny. (laughs) There's another one coming. (laughs) (laughs) We're about to mutiny three. It's going to come up soon. Yeah. But so, yeah, Hackman's in control of the ship again, and he announces to everybody, Be prepared to launch. I have an order in hand to launch this nuclear missile. We are going to do it. And so he's fully prepared to go through with it. And uh, what happens here? I know the rest of the movie is just a blur. It's just action back and forth as both sides are trying to take control. They are hack. I'm sorry. Denzel Washington gave the keys to the sonar guy, Rivetti. He shows up, takes out the guy he was fighting with before, and releases Denzel Washington and the cob from the officer's stateroom where they were being held. And they're making their way back to the bridge because Hackman, he needs two keys to be turned to launch it. The one in where Hackman is up on the bridge and also down in the weapons area with Webs. So Hackman turns the key up, key up in the the main area and tells Webs, turn your key. And Webs doesn't reply. Yeah, this is this is where Webs, again, Denzel's best friend in the movie, becomes very integral. Him turning a key will start World War Three. And Gene Hackman's yelling at him, we are launching these missiles in three minutes. You will turn that goddamn key. And Denzel has been freed from his prison. He's calling up to Webb saying, do not turn that key. And again, I I always think of The Rock. This is exactly like that scene in the shower room. I cannot give that order. Do give that order. You shoot those men. I cannot give that. It's like the exact same thing. Poor Webb's right in the middle. But at the last minute, Webb's will not do it, right? He will not turn this key and launch the missile. He won't do it. So Hackman leaves the key up in the control and goes down. He's going to turn the key himself. So Webbs has to actually open a safe to get the key. And Hackman is going to shoot Webbs in the head. And then Hackman realizes, well, if I shoot him, no one else knows the, knows the code to the safe. So that's not smart. So here's where Hackman goes full villain. He puts a gun to the head of an 18-year-old enlisted guy and said, I'm going to kill this sailor if you don't open the safe. He's going to murder him. <laughs> so finally, ha- finally, Webb says, okay, I'm sugar. I will go with you now. So he gives him the key, and Hackman turns the key. But lo and behold, one second before up in control, Denzel Washington had taken control up there and had removed the other key, so he saves the day. Okay, so this is the moment you feel Gene Hackman crossed the line and is now no longer in the right. 
Well, I, he was wrong firing Denzel Washington, but I don't think he went full evil villain until right about here. Okay. And again, so much like The Rock, because Ed Harris kind of goes full villain and then regrets it at the end, and Hackman kind of does the same thing. Yeah, Hackman threatens to shoot one of his sailors just so Webbs will turn the key, and yeah, Denzel uh, steals the main key, and we get this great showdown, the last 20 minutes of the movie, where basically... Uh, they cannot fire this nuclear missile until Denzel turns the key, puts the key in and turns it. And Hackman walks up to him and says, give me that goddamn key. And Denzel, one of the great badass moves of all time, says, basically, you want this key? Come get it. And he puts it around his own neck on a chain. Yeah, and Hackman then punches him in the face twice. His Denzel Washington's nose is bleeding. And at that point... This, the radio operator who is, you know, Scotty trying to give him warp drive calls up and says, I ha we're going to have the message here in a couple minutes. Hackman says, you have three minutes. <laughs> yeah. The last three minutes before World War Three is uh, the radio operator desperately trying to get the communication satellite working so they can get the second message. Gene Hackman threatening to punch Denzel. Guns being pointed at him in the in the command center. And Hackman saying, basically, I'm going to shoot you. Take that key and launch the missiles if we do not hear from this Vossler kid radio operator in three minutes. And so they sit down and they're waiting. It's like the tensest three minutes of the movie. And they decide to continue their discussion about horses from earlier in the movie. Yeah, Hackman lights up a cigar. And this is where this one scene surprised me in the movie because Hackman, he pulls out the racist card here that I did not see coming. He mentions that these Lippenzahner stallions are all white. And he kind of glares at Denzel and Denzel's, well, you're, you're wrong. They're not from Portugal. And they're born black and then turn white. And it was a very... I found it kind of racist, and I, did, I don't remember that being in the movie, and it was strange that it just popped up here out of nowhere, because it kind of undermines the ending in my mind a little bit. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's a, it did not show up at any point before this, that there was racial tension. Like, you they had class tension and education tension and age tension, but yeah, the race thing just pops up here at the end, where they're, like, shooting Im implied racial epithets at each other, basically. Yeah, it's, it's strange. Yeah, so they're just sitting there waiting for this Vossler guy to fix the radio. And again, this is a wonderfully tense last couple minutes of the movie. You're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, Vossler's like, I got it, I got it, I got it. And you see this EAP message coming through. The actual second message that they've been waiting for this entire movie, was it Was it the one that said, launch the missile, that Gene Hackman thinks it says? Or was it what Denzel said, that Rachenko was arrested and call off the missile attack? And it's basically we're going to find out which one of them is going to go to jail, who was right. And David, who ends up being right in the end here? At the end, Denzel Washington is right. They, you know, they go through all the protocols. They, they clarify it's the right message. Everyone agrees with it. The captain reads it and says, you know, calling off the launch. You know, he's been over, you know, over, Radishenko got overthrown. So we're done. And he kind of goes back to his stateroom to lay down with his dog. So when he announces that we're not going to be firing the missiles, the crew cheers wildly. People are screaming, high-fiving. Ryan Phillip, he's probably crying in bed. And the captain's dog is barking and wagging his tail. He's, he's even excited, too. It's a very smart dog. So the world is saved. Yeah, I really like this ending because it's so tense. Again, just these two great actors glaring at each other, trying to see who was right, whose theories on war are correct in the chain of command. And there's a great exchange here where uh, Captain Hackman gets this printout and he doesn't show anybody what it says. He kind of turns to Denzel and, uh, and Gene Hackman says, 
God help you if you're wrong. If you're wrong, and we should have fought, launched these nuclear missiles, we just let down the United States. We have just been attacked by nuclear missiles and did nothing to stop it. God help you if you're wrong. And Denzel says, if I'm wrong, then we're at war, and God help us all. <laughs> yeah, it's a great line. Yeah, and then at the end of the day, Denzel proves to be right, the slow, methodical, prudent person who thinks through their actions before they act ends up being right they did not launch these nuclear missiles they were ordered back and i find this scene kind of sad where gene hackman just kind of lowers his head and he takes off his hat and just goes back to his stateroom he just kind of knows his career is over yeah it's like old school navy is done it's fading into the sunset yeah and like you said, I wish that racial part wouldn't have been in there because it undercuts this end where Gene Hackman actually goes out of this movie with dignity in his head high. He does. You know, and before we get to that, I just want to say, so they're off of Russia and they have to go back to probably Hawaii. It's probably 10 days to get there. How uncomfortable are those 10 days on this submarine right now? <laughs> are, they, are they still having those officers dinners every night where they talk about war theory? Oh, yeah, it's just, it's crazy. Oh, yeah, so Mr. Ramsey, remember that time that I was right and you were wrong? <laughs> remember the time I mutinied you and you mutinied me? That was so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Chris Farley show. Yeah. Hey, remember that time? That was awesome when you tried to launch the nukes? <laughs> That's the, the most uncomfortable 10 days of officers' dinners you're ever going to hear. Yeah. And so that's the end of the movie that basically Gene Hackman's career is over. He jumped the gun. He broke protocol. He committed war crimes. He tried to shoot one of his 18-year-old un un uh, enlisted men. And at the end of the movie, we have a little epilogue where there's a basically a, uh, what is it, inquiry, basically, where Jason Robards, I forgot he was in here, shows up to lead the investigation of what went wrong. A little bit of trivia here. It's the might be the only time in movie history you had three actors in one scene, each with two Oscars. Wow. Yeah. And too bad they didn't have Ricky Schroeder there who had four Oscars. Yes. <laughs> I did not know that. So they all have. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Two. Yeah. Robard. Okay. Cool. That's a good bit of trivia. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the what is the Navy's consensus on how they're going to rule on this? What is Jason Robards drop down as their ruling? The ruling is they were both right and they were both wrong. But based on Gene Hackman, um, Ramsey's strong history with the Navy, we are accepting his request for early retirement. And Denzel Washington, Commander Hunter, on his recommendation, you will be given your command of the submarine at our earliest possible convenience. So everyone's happy at the end. It's very exciting. He does bitch slap them off the record, though. Oh, he does. He, he rips them, you know. In real life, none of that would have happened. They both would have been fired. And they probably, Hackman might have been in jail, but that doesn't make for a good end of a movie. Well, here's the little speech. Jason Robards has a nice speech where he sums up the movie. He says, how did the system break down? Chain of command was broken. That cannot happen on a nuclear sub. And he says, you were proven right, Mr. Hunter. But by the letter of the law, you were both right. And you were also both wrong. This will trouble us for years. You've both created a hell of a mess for the Navy. Violation of nuclear launch protocol. Mutiny aboard a United States nuclear sub. Are you shitting me? <laughs> and at the end of the day, yeah, uh, honorable discharge and you're promoted. Yeah, exactly. Congratulations. Well done. A, a little bit, another bit of trivia. The guy sitting next to um, Jason Robards on the lead, the bald guy, he was actually um, a guy named Skip Beard. He was the captain of the actual USS Alabama 
about five years before the movie happened. They hired him as a consultant and they put him in the movie. Wow. That's very cool. And sitting on Jason Robard's left was Alfonso from Silver Spoons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Doing the Carlton dance over there. <laughs> okay, and at the end of, that's the end of the movie. And again, uh, Gene Hackman has been given early retirement, honorable discharge. He has recommended Denzel get his own sub. So Denzel has been promoted. And they walk outside and they shake hands. And for the first time all movie, they kind of are friends. They respect each other. And Denzel says thank you and shakes his hand. And and, and uh, Gene Hackman has a little, I love this little scene. He's like, you know, you were right and I was wrong. And Denzel's like, really? And Hackman's like, yeah, about the horses. The, the black and white horses. Yeah. <laughs> Not about the sub stuff. I was right, but fuck that. But the horses, yeah, you were good on. And that's it. Yeah, and, you know, and the whole racist thing. Yeah, let's forget about that. Let's salute each other and shake hands and walk off as friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quentin, let's just say Quentin Tarantino wrote that scene after the movie wrapped and we inserted it later. So that had nothing to do with the script. And I just have to say this ending. I mean, have you ever seen the movie The Devil Wears Prada? I have. How are you going to work this in? Okay. <laughs> I think they stole the ending from this movie. The Devil Wears Prada. You have this horrible boss with an underling that she treats like crap the whole movie. And at the very end, she recommends her for a promotion completely out of the blue. And you wouldn't think they were doing it. They stole Crimson Tide. <laughs> it's the ending of Crimson Tide. So when they were writing The Devil Wears Prada, you were thinking they were thinking, how can I rip off Crimson Tide? Exactly. Meryl Streep is Gene Hackman. Let's make it happen. Yes. yes. <laughs> because I think this would be the same crossover audience as a, a Don Simpson, <laughs> Jerry Bruckheimer property for our world of fashion expose. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a little epilogue. Yeah, they shake hands and they walk away and all's well that ends well. There's no nuclear war. Crisis has been averted. And we get a little epilogue at the bottom of the screen. It just says, as of January 1996, only the president of the United States can launch a nuclear missile. And let's be clear, who do you think authorized the emergency action messages in this movie? The president. So that made no sense. <laughs> yes. Well, again, a very thoughtful, you know, mind provoking movie that didn't have to be. Again, it's like Roger Ebert said, you walk out of this movie talking about the ethics, who was right, who was wrong, what should have happened, you know, who was more responsible. So, again, for that reason alone, I just love this movie because it's so much deeper than you think it would be. So let me ask you this. You were not in the Navy. No. Who did you think was right watching this? Denzel. You did? <laughs> well, that's the thing. As Gene Hackman says earlier in the movie, I was trained to say, here's my mission. Here's my button. Push this button when we tell you to. So the way he was trained, he's correct. But from a bigger worldview, Denzel is clearly correct because there is no winner in World War III. You have to be very goddamn careful you're launching nuclear missiles. It's not like launching a normal missile back in the 40s or 50s. So they're both right, but I definitely side with Denzel in the big picture. Yeah, phenomenal movie. And as a former enlisted man, clearly you are Team Hackman. Actually, I was an officer, not an enlisted. Okay. But that's, yes, I was... I, I, Hackman was right by the letter of the law, but Denzel Washington saved the world, so he was right, too. <laughs> okay. So you're basically Jason Robards. You were right, and you were right. So good job, everybody. I'm, I'm promoting Denzel, yes. <laughs> All right. And with that, hopefully we have sold people on a movie that, again, it's not really an action movie. It's not really a war movie. It's more of a suspense movie, if anything. I don't know. How would you classify this if you had to say it in one sentence what it is a submarine action suspense thriller ethical 
great dialogue flick. With Ryan Phillippe crying over fish. Yes, he never leaves his bed. He cries and looks at fish. Yes, no wonder what no wonder Reese Witherspoon loved him. <laughs> and with that being said, am I way off base in hating the Hunt for Red October, or should I watch that again? What would you recommend for that one? Yeah, you know, I have a soft place in my heart for all submarine movies, so I liked it. I like this one much more. Okay, what about U five seven one? Where do you stand on that one? Um, third after I would put that after Hunt for Red October. Okay. That's the one with John Bon Jovi, right? Yeah, I think he – is he in there? Yeah. If he is, it's a small role. Up Periscope is funny. If you like a funny submarine movie, that's a good movie. <laughs> and I guess Das Boat is the best one, the German one? That one is probably the most realistic, but it's scary as shit if you've actually been on a submarine, yeah. Now, now why? Why is that one scary? I'm curious. It's the flooding, the actual it, – it's – much closer to what an actual war time situation would be. And it shows the terror on a submarine because submarines are inherently really dangerous things. I mean, if you're a thousand feet underwater and you get a pinhole leak from the outside, it doesn't look like a pinhole in your house. It looks like a 10 foot wide thing just spewing on the submarine. It's dangerous as hell. It's funny. I like, I study civil war history and American revolution history. And it's funny to see they had submarines back then. Yeah. And I have to wonder how fucking terrifying were those things? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I read somewhere, you know, they might have had a hundred of them and, you know, 90% of them, the people just died in the submarine, not from enemy combatants, but they just ran out of air and didn't know what to do about it and just drowned. <laughs> it's, it must've been horrible. Oh God. It was a design flaw. Yeah. Design flaw. We, we forgot to work in the oxygen part. <laughs> yeah. That's important. <laughs> You have to poke a hole in the top, like when you put a, a butterfly in a jar. <laughs> yeah, they give they give they give you a screwdriver and a straw. You just make a hole and stick it out. Okay, well, anyway, I just want to thank you for coming in and talking about uh, Crimson Tide. And before we sign off here, again, this movie is notoriously notorious for being unrealistic, and Navy people always call BS on it. What is the one thing that is the most unrealistic about this movie? Okay. When the sub, they show you the submarines from the outside, you know, going through the water, it's pretty boring just to see a submarine on a screen. So they insert underwater mountains that the submarines are going between. That's the scene, which you don't do it. I mean, you always maintain, you know, a certain depth below you where you could possibly hit something. They just do it for excitement. That was the one scene when whenever it came up in the movie theater, all the submarine people in the audience are yelling, that's bullshit, you know, just screaming at the screen. That's the most unreal. That and the dog. <laughs> I never noticed the mountains, and now I will never not notice them. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so the dog, the mountains, anything else that was big that really is egregious people need to know about? Yeah, in the be in the beginning, James Gandolfini, who's just an absolute dick during the whole movie, Oh, they're getting on a bus to go to the submarine, and he makes one of the enlisted guys drop him, give him push-ups. That, that doesn't happen. You treat your enlisted personnel as as best you can. You don't. It's not boot camp. Okay, good to know. But despite all that, you still enjoy Crimson Tide. Oh, it's phenomenal. Yeah, the, the, the changes they made make it a more interesting movie. The mountains. I think the mountains are what did it. They did, yeah. Without the mountains, it would have been a horrible flick. Yes. Because they're underwater going to Hogwarts, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yes okay anything else you'd like to add before we sign off and send our minions out to go watch a simpson bruckheimer movie go see this movie it's better than it's like top gun underwater go see it which again was the movie you saw with your wife on her first date right that was our first date and we've been together almost married almost 30 years now
My, uh, my wife and I, our first date, we saw Falling Down in 1994, which is like the worst, least appropriate movie for a first date, but it's our movie. Mario, I was out to sea in 93 and 94 about 90% of the time, so I lost most of the movies from 93 to 94. That was one of them. I've never seen it. You've never seen Falling Down? Nope. Oh, wow. Is that is that the, the alcoholic one with um Michael Douglas? Well, he's not alcoholic. He just basically snaps because he has no place in society. Oh, that's right. He, he he goes, yeah, serial killer. He goes nuts. Yeah, okay. And then they made a Foo Fighters video out of it later. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. Someone will get that joke. Okay. So anyway, yeah, thank you, David, for stopping by. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, preferably as close to the rock as possible, just like this one. And I will find somebody interesting to come on and call BS on them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Those sailors out there are just boys. Boys who are training to do a terrible and unthinkable thing. If that ever occurs, the only reassurance they'll have that they're doing the proper thing is going to derive from their unqualified belief in the unified chain of command. That means we don't question each other's motives in front of the crew. It means we don't undermine each other. It means in a missile drill, they hear your voice right after mine without hesitation. Do you agree with that policy, sailor? Absolutely, sir. We're here to preserve democracy, not to practice it.